This evening, I want us to begin a new series of lessons. And what I'm doing is simply breaking this down and trying to focus on particular points uh, more fully than just trying to run through this and kind of condense it all down quickly. I'm expanding the, the particular points of study. You know, we're in a culture right now where we're really caught up in, and to a great extent, we're regulated by what's called social media. Social media, I know that uh, people probably, Sydney and John's age, you've known it all your life, right? Just about. It wasn't very long ago, there was no such thing as social media. And I'm not talking about 50 years ago, I'm talking about maybe, you know, 25 years ago or so, maybe even less than, maybe even less than that. There was no such thing, but now we have all these social media platforms and on the surface level, we would look at that and say, well, that, that's really, boy, that's really something. That's great. We can communicate back and forth and so on. But I think it is actually, and I think some, some uh, you know, kind of analysts have looked at this and said, it's really done to a great extent just the opposite. It's cut down on our communications as far as communicating in a personal way. And it's actually contributed to a whole lot of young folks, maybe from their, maybe say, 35 or so on down, they're handicapped when it comes to face-to-face communication because they're not used to it. And they're, they're really uncomfortable meeting somebody face-to-face and actually having to have a conversation with them. So conversation, that's something that I want to apply in a special way as North kind of highlighted there a moment ago. And I've got to get my uh, wand here. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about some careless attitudes through this series of studies. And the first one I want, to, I want us to focus on is prayer. Prayer is how we have conversations with God. It is, as I've tried to illustrate for I, you know, many decades now, prayer is, we can think of it as our hotline to the throne room in heaven. We can talk to God any time through prayer, but not through social media. We need to have conversations with God every day, all day long. Jesus said in in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, be faithful means full of faith, literally. But what does that mean? It's not just a belief system. It is full of faith that is put into action through dedication, commitment, and obedience on a consistent basis. And it's all the time, all the time. What I want us to emphasize in this particular line of study through this series is that we need to be careful to not become careless in our faithfulness to God. In Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 16, the wise man wrote, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. All kinds of careless things, careless acts, careless words, carelessness on a general basis. We've seen consequences of that, haven't we? Probably some within our own lives, but also in the lives of others or in society as a whole. Well, we need to be careful to not become careless 
in our faithfulness to God because Jesus said, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. In Matthew Matthew chapter 24, in verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, it's interesting that when you look at the King James translation in both of these verses, instead of the word until in Revelation 2 and verse 10, and also he who endures to the end in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13, King James renders that particular Greek word unto. I really like that word unto, particularly in Revelation 2 and verse 10, because it's not talking about just up until the day we die, but it is, it's the sense, I believe, of even if your faith leads you to die for your faith. And certainly in the first century, we saw that happen numerous times, a multitude of times, because the Christians were being persecuted, and many of them they would not renounce their faith and they died for their faith. And that's the sense of that word unto. The reward is contingent upon my consistent and persevering faithfulness. That's it. When we look at Luke chapter 21 and verse 19, Jesus said, by your patience, possess your souls. The sense being, It will be by your patient continuing in your faithfulness, and that's active again, dedicated, committed, obedient on a consistent basis, you will possess your souls. In other words, you will guard your souls. That's our part. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, the Hebrews writer wrote, but Christ as as a son over his own house, whose house we are, And here's a big word that is conditional. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end again. In all of these passages of scripture, we're seeing the same thing. God is encouraging us and expecting us to stay faithful, dedicated throughout the rest of our lives. And then we look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14. Again, the same sense or the same principle. For we have become partakers of Christ if, that big conditional word again, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. As I've said many times in teaching and preaching, Christianity is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It is a lifelong race, and we even see it portrayed in such a way, the race that is set before you. So the reward is contingent upon my consistent, persevering faithfulness, and that's my part in securing my soul's salvation. Faithfulness, again, is belief and active dedication, which includes necessarily and without any question, obedience to to God's will that he communicates to us through his word. And true faithfulness, true faithfulness, so dedicated and committed as to lead a Christian to be willing to die rather than to give up or renounce his faith will result in that Christian's salvation. Now that's serious faith. And it would be easy for us to sit here this evening in a comfortable building, beautiful weather outside, warm season, 
surrounded by our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I would never renounce my faith. But what if all of a sudden the climate changed in our nation and suddenly we were either changed in our governmental kind of structure so that we were told you could only believe certain things, you could only teach certain things, you could only meet in public for, for certain uh, matters, but you could not teach Christianity any longer. Or what if we were, perish the thought, conquered by some foreign power that illegalized Christianity to be taught and practiced openly? It is that way in some countries in the world right now. Now we'd say, well, that could never happen to us. We're the, the only superpower left in the world, only legitimate superpower. Now that would be open for uh, debate, I'm sure, right now. But, but uh, look at all of the superpowers that we can list through history that no longer exist, at least as superpowers. And in some cases, they don't exist as, as, as even named nations any longer. We need to not become arrogant in our seeming self-sufficiency. We all desire, and maybe we claim to have that unyielding faith, but what about actions that would seem on appearance to indicate otherwise for us as individuals? You see, we need to be careful. Careless attitudes, careless attitudes we know what they can do when it comes to our profession, our job, when it comes to school. You get careless, you don't study the lectures, you don't study the materials, comes exam time, you find yourself all of a sudden, I didn't think I would get a grade that low, but it happens. Or in our job, we're careless in our job performance and one day the supervisor or the boss or personnel director, he comes up and says, we're going to have to let you go. Well, well why? why? You're just not doing the job. You've been careless. You've been making a lot of mistakes. In relationships, we need to not be careless, just assuming that everything's always hunky-dory and I don't need to give any particular attention into this relationship. No, we need to make commitments to that relationship if we want that relationship to grow and flourish. So careless attitudes can get us off track and lead us to unfaithfulness in our Christian life. In the one area of life that we most need to be focused on not becoming careless is our faithfulness to God, our Christian lives. When we don't carefully consider the potential consequences, that's, when careless, that's what carelessness is all about. That's what carelessness is all about. Sometimes we get careless, and as I said, I wanted to focus on prayer in this particular section of this study. We get careless in prayer. We get so busy, you know, I, I, I find myself so busy at times that I, I'm not taking care of some things that I really need to take care of. Now, I can... I can try to just explain that away by saying I, I, I've just been so busy, but it bothers my conscience that I have not been able to focus to take care of some of those situations I want to take care of and I need to take care of. But when we become so caught up in the affairs of this physical life or this world that we forget to take time to pray to God 
regularly throughout the day. It doesn't have to be a 15 minute prayer. Probably a number of us have sat through those in public settings, you know, that's okay. But it doesn't have to be that long lengthy prayer, but we need to have that conversation with our heavenly father. We need to go to him and pray. Sometimes we might say, well, I'm not sure what I really need to pray about right now. Talk to God. Ask him for his wisdom, for his guidance. Praise him. Thank him for all of his blessings. There's always something to talk to God about. We need to keep connected with him. Pray without ceasing is that verse of scripture in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. But look at Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are there any days out there in our lives today that are not evil? Now, I'm not talking about our doing evil things or being involved in evil practices. I'm just asking, is there a single day that goes by when there's not evil abounding in the world around us? I'd say no. Evil is all around us. In fact, you know, we, we, we have read where the scriptures tell us that this world is under the sway of the wicked one. First John chapter five, I believe it is. So the devil has his way to a great extent. Evil abounds, but we need to walk circumspectly. And that's with a focused eye, carefully, super carefully thinking about what will be the potential consequences if I take this step or I go to this place or I get involved in this activity? What will be the potential consequences and what would those consequences lead to, at least potentially? So Paul says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise and redeeming the time, making the most of the time because the days are evil. We need to keep our eyes open. Sometimes we just get careless about our prayer lives. We need to never let that happen, never. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, again, simple, one of the shortest verses in the entire New Testament, pray without ceasing. That does not mean go around praying every moment we're awake with a prayer flowing across our lips. That is not what's being talked about. But he's talking about you don't stop praying. You need, to be, you need to be having those conversations with God every single day and throughout the day because there's no time during that day that you don't need God walking with you. Think about how Jesus coupled prayer with his dedication in his service to God, fulfilling his mission here on this earth. We look at Matthew chapter 14. After miraculously feeding the 5,000, he went up into a mountain to pray. Did you, think about, did you think about Jesus praying? Did you think about Jesus needing to pray? Have you ever studied how many times the New Testament gospel accounts refer to Jesus praying? Over and over and over and over again. And so after miraculously feeding the 5,000, he went up on a mountain to pray by himself. And he would get away and do that from time to time. And then he came down and continued his work for God. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place 
recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought him and brought to him all who were sick and begged him to, to, that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as, they, as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now again, verse 23, just prior to that, a few verses, after the feeding of the 5,000, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus needed to pray to the Father in heaven. Jesus needed to have those, those conversations with his heavenly Father. On another occasion, he went to the mountain to pray. It's interesting, I think, how many times he's referred to as going up into a mountain to pray. And by himself, a number of times, he went, on to, up, went to the mountain to pray, and then he chose 12 apostles, and then he, he healed people and preached the Sermon on the Mount. But first, he went up to the mountain to pray. Do you have a prayer closet, so to speak? It doesn't have to be a literal closet. Uh, my car has been my prayer closet a whole lot of times. I would find some solace there. I'd find some privacy, and as I would drive along, or maybe just before I ever, you know, started driving down the street, just sat there and I'd converse with my Father in heaven. In verses 17 through 19 in Luke, in, uh, it, it, uh, I'm sorry, let's go back to Luke chapter 6 and verses 12 and 13. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out, out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles, divinely appointed apostles. But first he prayed, he prayed. Do you think he was praying to the father about, I'm gonna be ready now to choose from my followers, my disciples, 12 whom I'm going to appoint as apostles? I suspect that's part of it, at least part of the prayer that he was praying by himself up in the mountain. Beginning with verse 17 then, when it, and, and he came down with them, with who? With the apostles whom he just appointed. He came down with them and stood on a level place, and this is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. They were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and healed them all. First he prayed, then he came down and appointed from his disciples 12 men to be his apostles, and then with them he went down, and in that particular setting that gathered around them at that time, he preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We can read about that in more detail in Matthew, chapter, in, in Matthew chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7, one of the longer immediate contexts of Scripture in the New Testament. Well, interesting. Again, it began with prayer. We turn to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and here we want to begin reading with verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James with him. And they seemed to be kind of an inner circle among the apostles with, with Jesus. And that's just from, you know, kind of our, our human reasoning. They seem to have a little bit closer relationship with Jesus than the other nine apostles. It seemed like he took them a little bit off to the side with him a number of times. They seem to be a little bit closer. Well, in, in 
in, in Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28, it says, when it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to, on the mountain to pray. That's the third time we've read about him going up to the mountain to pray, isn't it? I love the mountains. I really love the mountains. And I've often, for many, many years, I have thought in my mind, I think it would be a great place for me to get away sometime for a period of a couple of weeks or so, or maybe a month, and just really immerse myself in studying and writing God, from God's word. Went up to the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Now we call this the transfiguration. And so while Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus up in the mountain where Jesus went up there to pray, and I'm Imagine, I'm pretty sure he was probably praying with Peter, James, and John. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. Now, what's the significance of that? They had died many hundreds of years before, but there they were. They had been servants of God. Moses, the great leader of the nation of Israel, as they came out of Egypt and he led them to the borders of the promised land, all through those wilderness wanderings for 40 years. Elijah, one of the great and powerful and bold prophets of Old Testament times for the Israelites. And there they appear with Jesus. Jesus' face, his, his, his appearance changed, became white and glistening. And perhaps we can understand that as being symbolic of absolute purity because he was absolutely pure. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that's a little bit of an interesting point there. How would you like for a couple of friends to show up and start talking to you about when you're going to die? <laughs> but of course, Jesus came into this world to die on the cross. That was part of his, that was central, in fact, to his mission. And so here they appear to him. Wouldn't you like to know what they said to Jesus and what Jesus said specifically back to them? But they came, perhaps on a mission from God, to encourage him, maybe to give him some strengthening words from the Father in heaven, again, which that's just conjecture on our part. But they came and appeared with him on that Mount of Transfiguration. Well, interesting, interesting. We look a little bit further in that same chapter. We drop down to verse 37. Now it happened on the next day. Now where was he the day before? On the mountain with Peter, James, and John praying. The next day, when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. His father was so concerned about his son. Well, the text goes on. The father tells Jesus further, so I implored your disciples to cast it out. 
but they could not. Jesus, in a little bit wondering of a response on our part, to whom exactly was he referring here, when he answered and said, O faithless, perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Perhaps he was speaking to the man, but then simply using him or focusing on him as a reference to the people in that time at large, especially the Jewish people to whom he had come specifically. How long, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Again, he had been the day before up in the mountain praying, and then he came down and he continued to do his work. In this particular case, cast a demon out of a boy, young boy. What happened when it came time for him to go to the cross? Well, we all know what he did the night before, don't we? He went to Gethsemane for what? To pray, to pray. We might wonder why would Jesus actually need to pray? He was the son of God, God the son, the savior. He came in human form, remember? And while still fully divine, he was also fully human. He needed those conversations with the heavenly father just as we need those, those conversations on a regular basis. So before going to the cross, he went to Gethsemane to pray. And I'm just going to read a bit of an excerpt here. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Now the disciples or the apostles who went with him that into Gethsemane were a little bit further than the rest of the apostles were, again, Peter, James, and John. Verses 42 through 44. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy, Peter, James, and John again. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Saying the same words. Do you suppose that maybe Jesus not only needed to spend that time in prayer to the Father for his sake, but he needed to be example, that example of praying to the Father regularly for our sake? It's written down in scripture, isn't it? And think of all those disciples, those followers, as well as the apostles who would see him get by himself and pray regularly. But it wasn't just when he went off by himself. He would pray regularly. Remember when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000, what did he do first before he had the disciples pass out the food? Prayed, didn't he? Prayed. Well, before going to the cross, he prayed. Now, no wonder, no wonder the apostles specifically asked him to teach them to pray. Luke 11 and verse 1, it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. <laughs> there it is again. How many times have we read in this very limited study 
that Jesus took time to pray. As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples, his followers. And Jesus did teach them to pray. What we call now something of the model prayer. It's referred to often as the Lord's Prayer, but he was giving them kind of a general frame, framework, I think, of what kinds of things that we ought to include in prayer on a regular basis before God when we're having those conversations with him. But in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, he gave a lengthy illustration about how we need to not only you know, just be focused on saying the right words, but we need to be persistent, persevering in our prayer life. He spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. You ever gone fishing? If you want to go fishing, just throw your line out one time and expect to catch a fish, don't go fishing. Okay? Don't buy a boat. Don't even buy a fishing pole. Don't buy any bait. You're wasting your time. Okay. So he says, this is the lesson. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Apparently he was quite arrogant, but he was in a position of authority. Jesus went on and said, now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And the response of the judge, he would not for a while, Jesus said. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continuing coming she weary me. Now Jesus was saying, and it was using the widow as an illustration of persistent, persevering prayer. He said, that widow wore out that arrogant judge. Not by going to him one time, by going to him over and over and over with the same petition. And the judge kept saying, no, 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 you got it. I remember when my oldest son was just a little toddler, a year, maybe two years old, maybe not two years yet. And all little kids like potato chips, right? And we left him for something. We we were going to do something. And so my older brother and sister-in-law said they would watch him for a while. So after we came back to pick him up, my brother said, he just kept asking for chips. And in that little boy way, he'd say, chips? He said, we tell him no. Chips? No. Chips? No. Chips? No. Can't have any chips. Chips? Have some chips. Because <laughs> our son wore those two adults out, just continuing to ask for chips. So. Jesus said, that's what that woman did, that widow. She wore out that arrogant judge. 
And then he makes an application. Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge, avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them? Sometimes God says, wait a while. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Jesus says, take the lesson from that persistent widow who wore out that unjust judge. Now, God is not arrogant. God is not unjust. He is absolutely pure. And he loves you. As you walk with him, he'll avenge you speedily. Just keep praying. How much time and thought do you put into prayer on a regular basis? Is it a part of your daily life throughout the day at different times? Before you partake of a meal, do you stop and give God thanks in prayer? Do you praise God and glorify him before you eat, wherever you are? Do you have a particular times during the day, maybe when you get up in the morning, you wake up, maybe as you're getting ready, you stop and take some moments to pray to God. Before you go to bed at night, do you make sure that before you close your eyes, you stop and pray to God about the day gone by or situations that you know about and the day coming ahead? Do you stop and pray to God about it? Well, James chapter four and verse two, James says, you lust and do not have, you murder and, and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Dropping down to verse 13, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we shall go into such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. We'll buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Tomorrow is not yet in your control. For what is your life? It is even a little vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. James says, you're not asking God into your plans. You're just making your plans in spite of what God's will might be. So how do we turn it over to God and ask for his will to be done, to be, to be shown to us, we got to pray to him. And God is able to do more than you can ask or imagine. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, the apostle Paul wrote that God is, is exceeding, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think. God is more powerful really than we can imagine. Able to do more exceedingly, more abundantly than what we can ask or think. So why would we not go to our Heavenly Father in prayer? Why would we not have those conversations with him on a regular daily basis? In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, Speaking of that power of God, it is written, Paul wrote, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Nobody in this world loves us like God loves us. Oh, our husband, our wife, our children, our parents, our grandparents, 
Our grandchildren, oh, that's a deep love. That's a very special love. But they don't love us like God loves us. God's love has a power within it that transcends any human love that we might experience in this world, in this physical life. God loves us so much. He wants to hear from us. He wants to be able to bless us, to guide us, to give us his wisdom. We just need to go talk to him about it. We need to ask him. Are you trying to do life without prayer for God's guidance and blessings? Remember what James wrote in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Prayer keeps you in touch with God who can do all things, all things. Careless attitudes? Let's never let ourselves become careless in our prayer lives, our hotline to the throne of God in heaven. If you're here this evening needing to become more serious about your spiritual life, I pray that this lesson has helped you kind of refocus and maybe, you know, focus in on maybe carelessness that you have allowed to take place in your life. Ask God to forgive you and also ask him to strengthen you and give you his wisdom and guidance. Go to him in prayer always, always. If you need to become a Christian, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Christ as God's son and your Lord and Savior, what a great evening to do that to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, for salvation, for eternal life. If you need the prayers of the church, we're here, just ask us. We'd like to pray with you and for you. And there's prayer again. Let's not be careless in our prayer lives. Let's not practice careless Christianity. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together?